Irish cities don't tend to be very like tall, but Hebron specifically was like they didn't build out, they built up. So all the buildings are quite tall, but they're also quite old and you really feel like say like a good earthquake or something would like raise this place to the ground. In 2013 there was like 800 like settlers living in Hebron. Mm. And yes, there's like a battalion living in and around this like military encampment and like the other military encampments around Hebron. And a battalion is like up to 4,000 men. Basically, settlers will do things like put piss in bottles or like put bleach in bottles and like throw them down like onto the barbed wire so that they're like hitting like the stall owners or like hitting the people in the market or like you have like piss and like bleach and stuff like dripping down. It's intimidation to like a whole nother level. Seven Days in Palestine. I'm your host Jason, and before we get into the episode, I'd like to reintroduce you to Billy, whose story is the main focus of this podcast. Hi, my name is Billy, and two summers ago, I spent seven days in Palestine. Today, we're going to talk about day four. So, Billy, last time we left you off on the podcast, you had just talked about your day trip to Jerusalem, including uh, we ended off by kind of talking about the gun laws in Jerusalem with the settler kids and the IDF, Mm -hmm. and kind of how just strange the entire experience was. Where do we go from here? So um, basically, we didn't really talk about the end of the day because not much really happened. We kind of like got embroiled in like in the nature of like Israel itself and like being in like East Jerusalem or sorry, West Jerusalem. We were um, we just kind of like much like the kids, we kind of got like normalized to the situation. So like we just started shopping like we it wasn't like a jump up and down thing of like we were completely horrified for the entire day we were kind of horrified at the start and then when you see your like 20th kid with a gun like like sadly you just kind of get over it what I realized like that day more than anything else was that it was just gonna be really difficult to like see these things for like the first couple of times and that like I just had to almost get over it and like persevere and like be horrified and like take the stories away from what they were but also like move through them because like I still had like the rest of the trip left and also if I was like to get completely bogged down in like everything like I shouldn't be bogged down by like one incident that wasn't even like very impactful to me it was just kind of like something that I saw so for the rest of that day we kind of just went shopping um we had like a pleasant enough evening like given the circumstances we got the bus back to Beit Zahor. Um, Majahid got off. We said goodbye. We we were going to meet him later in the week. So it wasn't like a massive deal for him to say goodbye. Um, we went through checkpoints again. We were kind of like getting used to the routine. Uh, we just went home, had dinner and like we were discussing what we should do for the next day um, over dinner. And we decided that uh, we were going to get in touch with a mutual friend of like Majahid and Tammy's. And she works for... This woman works for um, a Christian peacemaker team and they work out of like Hebron um, as like this, what's the word, like a mediator group between like Muslims and Jews because of like kind of like racial and like uh, religious conflicts in the area. Like that all has to do with like kind of major political movements and like the conflict between like Israel and Palestine. And that's kind of not what we're going to talk about today. We're just going to talk about like what like I did and what we did while we were there and like the stories that like the people that we met could tell us mm. because um 
there's just so much history in this region that we could spend like it's an entire podcast's worth of stuff to talk about like the conflict yeah and that's not really what this podcast is anyway this is more of like an experiential thing like you know where you're talking about stories that happened to you while you were there and like it's hard to talk about history yeah you know on that basis i think it's much better to just you know go with what we know basically. yeah exactly like i i'm not a regional expert in the middle east or even like in palestine and israel i'm just a guy who was like passionate about the subject enough to go mm. and uh like that's kind of the basis that we've got to come at this from and that's kind of like the mindset that i had going into hebron so we got up the next morning um it was like another easygoing day get into the taxi get into the, the minibus go through another checkpoint you know um we were even sat at the back of the bus of this minibus because um they were like oh yeah the white the white people aren't gonna have to get out of the bus there's no reason for them to like be in the like easy ticket out seats so they were like just shove them in the back it'll be fine so yeah we like show our passports to the soldiers they wave us through they let all the, the palestinians back on the bus like it it's all kind of like becoming routine and um as depressing as that sounds it's just kind of how it is over there and we arrive into hebron and uh we're kind of hit with like the scale of the city it's like irish cities don't tend to be very like tall but hebron specifically was like they didn't build out they built up so all the buildings are quite tall but they're also quite old and you really feel like say like a good earthquake or something would like raise this place to the ground it's almost like rickety in its construction everything is like brick and mortar like there's almost no like to contrast it with like west jerusalem there's almost no like steel or like glass involved it's kind of like old europe in some ways yeah like the exactly. buildings are so like i mean those are built of built from wood obviously but like if a fire was started on the bottom floor everyone in the building would die like <laughs> you know like that type of thing so it's like it's yeah. just like it's not constructed for people's safety it's for convenience yeah and absolutely for like, you yeah. know it's just the way that kind it's of like is. like when you see like the rocks that the houses are made of you're like oh yeah that was sourced nearby like it wasn't flown in from like wherever like it wasn't it's not marble from a land like yeah it's like sandstone or whatever from like the local like quarry you know and everything seems like light on like building regs you know and like what that boils down to is in a sprawling city is like this maze of like narrow streets which are like the perfect places for like markets and stuff because obviously if you have a courtyard where like five narrow streets like lead into like there's gonna be a handful of people in that courtyard selling stuff because they're like oh yeah you're lost you've no idea where you're going like oh why like this sack of fruit for me and i'll tell you where to go like yeah and that's kind of like because we all we started to realize like uh pretty soon after arriving in hebron like the the issue that we talked about before about like google maps not working apple maps not working properly um or at all and um we realized that meeting at the like the building where uh the christian peacemakers are based was just basically not possible mm. um so we had to go by like the nearest landmark that we could think of which is the um the ibrahim ibrahim mosque uh, like I said, not a pronunciation expert either, but um, basically what that's based on is it's it's built I think on the the cave of the patriarchs, which is like um, where Abraham is built. He's like he's buried, yeah, in the Bible. Why? What did yeah. I say? You said built. Oh, yeah. Okay, uh, we well, you know what you mean. Yeah. Christ. <laughs> so yeah, this is where um Abraham was buried, and um he, sorry, she um. We arranged to meet with um, 
this like friend of Majahid's at the Ibrahim Mosque, and we we kind of like barter and buy our way there from like local vendors and like signs half translated into English or like there might be they might be in like French and I'm like oh I did junior third French I know basically what this basic sign says yeah so it's like you you see things like mosque restaurant or like mosque like this way like an, an arrow pointing and you're like oh it's probably talking about what where we're going um so there was a lot of like assuming and like it, it was so chaotic that you couldn't even be like anxious about like not knowing where the fuck you were um you kind of like had to roll with it and um like it was just an interesting experience being like lost in this sprawling city especially in like a place where you like spoke none of the language or and no one spoke like your language either like english is not a common language in um in hebron for whatever reason and so we kind of like barter and buy our way there and um we meet um this friend of majad's and tammy's uh at the mosque uh, i'm not going to name her name for like kind of obvious reasons as like a mediator they do really important work and like i'm going to be sharing stories that they like shared with me and um i don't know it would be in bad faith for like to share horror stories from like yeah no of course there is like i think a level of like we're telling you the story because like we know you in person but like this isn't something to spread around yeah exactly it it might compromise just the work they do so Mm -hmm. yeah exactly yeah so um so we we get like kind of the guided tour back from the mosque to the to the building and um we're led up these like set of like rickety stairs basically to like the the third or fourth floor of like what would be a shanty building in like a normal western city what is like perfectly reasonable to house like peacekeepers in in palestine but um yeah so we get to the top floor and um we're met by this like elderly woman she's in her late 60s early 70s and um when you think like hippie that this is the woman you think of she she's literally got the john lennon glasses and everything yeah and um like we're introduced to her as like um say her name is helen right we're introduced to her as like sister helen but like almost with a chuckle yeah and um we're kind of like oh yeah okay this woman's obviously a nun like devout christian like that's cool as someone who's like just starting out in college and like is kind of like finding their way on like the the spirituality thing it's it's hard to like encounter like a nun or something like that in like like a very serious setting and you're kind of like, what is this woman's story? You know, how is she here? Like, And um, as it turns out, she's not particularly religious at all. And this woman is actually an activist. And she joined Christian peacemakers to like make a difference. Um, and after a number of years of being in Palestine, uh, the Israelis kind of like caught on that she was going to be working with them all the time. Mm. So they blacklisted her. And um, being blacklisted means that you basically can't, um, you can't, come back to Palestine or Israel at all and uh to get around that what she did was she got I think the word is ordained as like a nun Mm. and uh because the one thing that they can't stop is they can't stop religious like pilgrims so as a nun she's like allowed to be in the holy land so she used like getting nun status to like like be in Palestine for as long as she wanted um, so it was like it was kind of a way of like extending her like visa almost. It's so genius, like it, it oh, so it's genius. like it's the most underhandedly brilliant thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Like I don't know the moral standpoint, I'm not sure about that, but in terms of like a smart thing to do. Yeah, well she genius. was like she was definitely like religious in some ways, yeah. but she was kinda of like 
she's she wasn't like the nun in like Catholic Ireland sense like yeah of course but sure I mean it's very different like, very different you know, very yeah. different to things I mean she, in fairness she's probably doing more good than a lot of people that would actually be like yeah serious nuns yeah. like you know it's like she's actually doing like good work mm-hmm. like so, really good work yeah. yeah and like another story that kind of came out of this was like uh, she's she had like a fervent like love of soccer and um like we're overlooking this like alleyway and uh in the alleyway there's like four or five like young boys like they're definitely like like 12 or like younger um and they're just like going at it like for like soccer but it's like it's you know when you put your jumpers on the ground for goalpost kind of soccer yeah like. it's like street street soccer it's like, a yeah. street soccer yeah. yeah and um they're playing with this like a uh, colombian soccer ball and like you have to ask the questions of like where are they getting these things like because it's like it's like a fifa branded like colombian football yeah. it's like it's official like it's better than any football i ever owned like and um we're like looking at them and uh everyone in the room can like tell that this is like piqued our interest and um this uh the sister like she like chuckles and she like opens the closet to show like this um this like ball of uh not a ball this like big bat like big like pee bag of soccer balls yeah and um it's like this like it's this weird private joke where um apparently so this is a story that like that i was kind of like in looped in on like i don't know how like valid it is or like anything like that but um like this is just the story that i was told so um basically these kids had these kids had like a ball that they were like playing with all the time and then like one day because we're really near like a military base which like i'll get into in a minute but um like one day like one of the soldiers like say they like kick the ball over like the road or whatever i like by accident like like kids do you know and like one of the soldiers seems to like come out of the military base and he like somehow he deflated it like as stories go he shot the ball like mm. like to deflate it but um you know you have to take that with like a grain of salt yeah, in a place yeah, like this you know if he did he's a bastard oh man stop like, like a terrible person like literally that's like yeah. the worst <laughs> it's like popping a balloon in the face of a baby like yeah um, but anyway, the story, like, at this point is, has been exaggerated to the point where, like, he shot the ball, right? Yeah. And, um, this sister got, like, so pissed off about that, that, um, when she knew that, like, new people were coming on, like, specifically the person that we were with, like, at the moment, she, like, sent her an email, and this person had been working in, like, uh, Colombia beforehand, kind of, like, all around, like, South America, but, like, Colombia was, like, her was her last posting before coming to Palestine. And uh, the sister, like, sent her an email and was like, oh, I need you to, like, bring soccer balls. So this, like, woman shows up with, like, a Colombian soccer jersey and, like, a PE bag full of soccer balls from Colombia. And, like, they're all deflated, but they're like, it doesn't matter because every time, like, an IDF soldier comes and, like, ruins these kids' fun, they're like, they've got another ball, like, ready to, like, stick it to them, basically. Yeah. Which is kind of, like, perfect, I think. I think it's like it definitely football in particular is like such a world sport and like I feel like that really brings I don't know football is like a sport of joy so like the fact that they were like trying to destroy these kids joy and you know they were like managing to like bring it back every single time I don't know mm. it's like quite a powerful thing I think yeah yeah because I mean obviously like football has like helped so many people like I mean professional like world stars to like escape poverty and I think it's like it is something that like it's a game of like dreamers yeah so I think it like it's a good escape mechanism for that i think and like it kind of bring you away from the horrors of like 
the fact that a soldier allegedly possibly shot your soccer ball mm-hmm. you know like it can bring you out of like living in that reality and like you can kind of be whatever you want yeah. so I don't know I think that is like quite a powerful thing they've done with that yeah really like I think see like what the, one of the things that the Christian peacemakers do like basically all day every day is they um they like monitor like the checkpoints around Hebron so Hebron's like in between like the different zones of control um in Palestine and what that means is that to go to like school a lot of these kids have to like pass through a checkpoint every morning and I don't know if they're like not allowed be like stopped but they're definitely like not supposed to be um like stopped for like an overly long time and a lot a lot of what the, the peacemakers do is they like monitor the checkpoints to make sure that the like the kids are going to school and there's like no hassle when they're coming back or anything like that. Mm. And obviously there's lots of stories of like kids getting arrested for no reason because they were going to school or something like that. But a lot of what happens like during the day is kind of like washed away by like playing kid playing like soccer with these kids at like night. Yeah. Um so there's a lot of like there's like these lamps that like the peacemakers put on their building to like let the kids play in darkness, you know. Uh, not exactly floodlights either. Like they're basically lamps, like mm. shining into this alleyway. Like, hey man, they'll do a job, you know. Yeah, That's exactly. All you need, yeah. Like to be fair, people have done like more with less, you know. So th- this is like a four-story building, right? And there's actually like roof access. So we're brought up and we're like, we're shown this kind of like grand vista of like Hebron. And we're told to take like loads of photos, but only in like this two hundred and eighty degree radius, right? There's like. 80 degrees where we're like oh yeah look but don't take any photos mm. and it turns out that uh what the building like over the road is is actually like this massive like military encampment and so there's like i think in like the figures that like i i know now but I, these aren't up to date but um they're just like the only ones i have to hand is like in 2013 there was like 800 like settlers living in hebron mm. and yes there's like a battalion living in and around this like military encampment and like the other military encampments around Hebron, and a battalion is like up to four thousand men. Yeah, so it's basically like four men for each settler. Yeah, which yeah. is just nuts. Like, yeah, um, it's it's just fucking crazy to me. Like, um, and it, you see this kind of thing like all around like Palestine. It's like one settler, an army of soldiers, like backing them up. You know, yeah. um, and that seems to be like what a lot of like the like the kind of encroachment comes from like oh if you put one settler in one place you can like justify putting a load of like military people in beside him like to yeah. protect them or whatever and that's like a much bigger thing for like the whole intimidation factor of like yeah definitely encroaching yeah. on these places as you said is like having an army presence there yeah because like i mean one settler like what are they gonna do to you you know they might say something or like you know make mm. feel like but it's like it's not the same as an army like yeah you know and like it's especially bad when you like think about like the settlers generally aren't passive either. These are the same guys that like have guns or like like lots of settlers are like ex IDF, you know. Yeah. So like they're coming from a position of power. Like yeah. Well, obviously, I mean, if Israel are sending you to places as a settler, you're probably like, you know, drinking the Israel Kool Aid. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, yeah. It's like you're like fully in. Like you don't like. There's no like. There's no take backs. Yeah, exactly. You know, you probably don't feel bad about the whole Palestine situation. Mm-hmm. Like you're like literally in the club, like you know. Yeah, you've kind of been indoctrinated to like think what you think about like Palestinians. Yeah. Which is like hard in some way because, like, I can't imagine a place where like you basically just try to hate your neighbor. Like. Yeah, all your neighbors, but like everyone around yeah. you, like the majority of the people that live there. It seems like I don't know, man, life not worth living in a lot of ways. I yeah. think. 
Um, and that's like we're gonna kind of like touch on like some of the like struggles that like of the local people now because like we're brought on like a tour of Hebron from um our mutual friend, and um the main thing is like well firstly she introduces us to like the kids and like the kids seem like pretty chill they're like you know they just love soccer and like kind of like all the normal stuff that like kids love you know yeah they're like normal they're very normal which is like why it's so difficult because like we're like we're told to like oh like come to their like father's shops and stuff and like we're like oh yeah we're going to the market so like we definitely will mm. so um we start going through the market and the best way of like describing it is like we're kind of like on a stone path which like slopes up and down and then there's like like it's quite a narrow it would be considered an alleyway if it was in Cork but it's like a street in in Evron like yeah. because it's like it's no more than like three meters like wide at any point and there's like shops on the side that like you know the way they're like shops in these places they like kind of overflow onto the yeah, streets yeah so it makes the place even smaller like you yeah, really exactly. feel like it's like coming in yeah, you know, yeah. You're like yeah but it's only ever one story high because like there's like what you think would be like a roof above you but mm. actually what that roof is is like barbed wire and like chained wire and stuff and there's all these like bottles on top of like say like coke bottles or whatever like on top of the of the wire with like no caps on them and, like, every now and again, there's, like, stuff dripping down from one of these bottles. And you're kind of looking at it being like, oh, man, it's such, like, like a weird place to put your rubbish, you know? Yeah. And um, as we're going through the market, like, we're talking to, like, vendors and stuff. And they're like, oh, yeah, you know, you see what the settlers do. Uh, and they're, like, pointing up the wire. And so what we learn is that the first floor of all these markets are owned by, like, Palestinians who, like, own stores, mm. right? But then, like, so the way that, like, the Palestinian, like, land authority thing works is, like, you only own your land to, like, a height, and then, like, anyone owns it above. So, basically, yeah. like... So, it'd be, like, someone building over your house. Yeah, basically. And they're, like, completely, like, legally allowed to do that. They, yeah. like, build on top of other people, like, loads. So, there's loads of settlers, like, built on top of, like, all these other houses. And um, the barbed wire is to, like, keep them safe to, like, stop people, like, coming into their houses or whatever. But what actually happens is... And, like, you can't say that, like, this isn't happening because, like, the bottles are there, like... Basically, settlers will do things like put piss in bottles or, like, put bleach in bottles and, like, throw them down, like, onto the barbed wire so that they're, like, hitting, like, the stall owners or, like, hitting the people in the market or, like, you have, like, piss in, like, bleach and stuff, like, dripping down, like, on top of people, like, it's yeah. just fucked up. Like. Jesus, man. It's, like, it's intimidation to, like, a whole nother level. Like. Yeah, that, that's, like, assault. Oh man, it's like, fucking way worse than assault. Anywhere else, man, there'd be prosecutions. Yeah, like, man, you know, it would be an outrage, like. Or if it was the opposite way around, they'd shoot a bunch of people. Yeah, gross. And like that's like we obviously can't say supported, but like I mean, obviously, like the like the whole point of them going there is to like get the Palestinians out of there. Yeah, you know, basically, like it's all this just this big like intimidation tactic to like get all the Palestinians like out of this area. It's like a really fucked up like place because like the market's so peaceful and so like kind of jovial because they're like. Because we're, like, in with, like, someone who's, like, living there, we kind of get, like, the green light of, like, oh, it's not, like, a tourism trap. It's, like, it's what, like, people are, like, are really feeling. It's just a kind of, like, deeply personal stories about, like, settlers treating other people like crap, you know? I mean, this all sounds really biased because I definitely am biased in regards to Hebron because, like, like we only kind of talked to one group of people um, and that was, like, Palestinians. Like, we didn't really get to see any settlers because any settlers that we met on the road kind of, like, like, looked down our noses on us because of, like, the company we were with. Yeah. They were like, oh, man, you're not with other settlers or you're, like, not with the IDF. Like, fuck you, basically. Yeah, yeah. Like, 
So like that was kind of really hard. Like, um, yeah, it's hard to be objective with that. Like, if a girl kind of hates you slightly, it's yeah. like why you know why would you even bother to? Because they're not bothering to. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Get the other side of the story, and they live there like like mm-hmm. full time, and they're still like being assholes about everything. Yeah. Man, I even have you being kind of biased. Nice. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's hard to be objective, man. To be fair, it is hard to be objective. How can you be objective when you're literally telling me, "Oh, man, these people are like throwing bleach and like piss." Yeah. Because like, it's not like these markets are like just market vendors. There's like kids playing in these streets too. Yeah. You can't be objective when people are like throwing bleach at kids. Like, what the fuck? They're just man's people's places of business, though. It's like Mm -hmm. you should be like you should be able to trade in peace, especially it's like. Not like they're trading guns or anything like that. They're trading like knickknacks. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's or like, like shoes and stuff. Like yeah, basically, food. like Hebron is like renowned for like it's uh, producing like leather shoes and stuff. And basically, what the Israeli settlers seem to do was they like imported a load of like shoes from China to like completely ruin their like economy. Yeah. Like what the fuck? It's like it's it's just there's a lot of stuff like that, but it's like. Man, the Palestinians aren't like blameless either in Hebron because of like all the political stuff. So it's like, it is really hard to be. Of objective. course, there's a lot of history there. Like, there's a lot I mean, of history, but this is just like what you're seeing when you're there. Yeah. Obviously, you're not getting the full story, obviously, mm-hmm. but like it's just what you saw. Yeah. To like to talk more on history was like um kind of like a section of history is that like Hebron is like such like like a culturally rich place um and like I'm pretty sure that like the leather working that like creates the shoes is like protected by like. The UN basically, yeah. Um, and it's the same thing with like their glass works. And what 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 we were shown was one of the kids who plays who plays soccer in the alleyway. His dad, like, works in this like glass blowing workshop, and we like got to visit there. And it's like it literally has this like big plaque on the side of the door that says like all oh, protected by like UNESCO, yeah. which like in Ireland is like a huge deal. And then Hebron, he was kind of like, oh yeah, like this is just what I do. Like the UN pays some of my bills. That's all. Like. And he, like, we go in and we're like, oh, yeah, this is probably just, like, another guy who's, like, selling tourist, like, glass blown stuff. Or, like, you know, like, bulk buys glass products or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, We've all seen them, like. Like, yeah, like, from being from, like, in Western Europe and, like, traveling to, like, cities like that, you get so used to, like, people saying that things are, like, master... Master Masterworks. Yeah, Masterworks. Yeah, like, especially, like, Barcelona is the one I always come back to because, like, everyone is selling the same stuff. Yeah, that's exactly Generally. what I'm I mean, of, yeah. you might get every once in a while someone that has something different, like, something mm. special, but, like, a lot of the time it's, like, the same five or six t-shirts, the same five or six, yeah, like, Yeah, you exactly, know, yeah. Like, and, like, yeah. I kind of went into this workshop, like, thinking it was going to be something like that. And um, in the corner of this workshop is this giant, like, I'm pretty sure it's called a kiln, but it's, like, where you blow glass. Mm. And this guy is just, like, He's not, he's not like selling anything. He's literally like working at like blowing glass. So like he's blowing like all this glass in front of me. He's like shaping it and molding it into like, because it was literally a hunk of glass when he pulled it out of like the fire and he's like molding it into like this like glass horse, which is like, it's amazing looking. Like he kind of in the end, like, so I think I'm like watching him for like 20 minutes or something like that. And he like finds like one small imperfection in the horse, like at the very end. And he's like, oh, yeah, this is going on, like, the bin pile, you know? Yeah. So it's, like, what would have been perfect in, like, Western society is, like, he's, like, nah, not gonna, like, even put this up for sale. And he literally throws it into this pile of, like, other, like, shattered glass. What would have been masterworks to anyone else? And so he has this, like, apprentice, which is, like, he's, like, like late teens, I think. Like, definitely not 18 or anything like that. But he's he's older than 15. Yeah. Like, somewhere, like, somewhere around that 15, age. 15, 16, 17. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. 
and um he's like kind of milling around the store kind of like he's he wants us to like look at like the craft but he's also like oh man maybe buy something and then there's like maybe like his little brother or like one of the dude's son or something and he's like five or six and he's like milling around like picking up random pieces of like like glass and like putting them into this box and uh i'm pretty sure that like all the glass can be like reused to like make new works or whatever yeah so um but like to our standards they're still like all sellable and uh anyway as this kid's like like leaving he like trips and like he's fine but like the glass like like hits the ground and uh loads of them like shatter and like the the mask like i'm gonna call him like the master worker um the guy who's like blowing the glass is like oh yeah that's fine it's like a lesson learned that guy's gonna know where like this kid's gonna like know where that step is next yeah, and time. Know to look for now on. Yeah, and like, yeah. it looks like it's like fucking like what would have been like hundreds of hundreds or like maybe a thousand euro worth of like objects are just like smashed in the instant. And this guy's like, oh, it doesn't really matter. Me. I just like, think of the time though, like you know, yeah, time exactly. Spent like making... time hours is like huge. Yeah, like it's you know, and like this entire box is just smashed, and he's like, oh yeah, it's fine. Like he's clearly spent like. Like, while that might have taken him hours and hours to make all those, the stuff in, in the box, he's also, like, that's, like, a drop in the ocean to, like, the hours that I've put in already. So it, like, doesn't matter to him. And so we're, like, we're looking around the store, and I'm, like, oh, my God, I have to buy something here. Like, th- like one, because it's, like, amazing quality, but two, also, like, this guy is given, like, such time and dedication to his craft that, like, it would be, like, a tragedy for me not to, like, take something, something away to, like, remember this place for him. So I pick out like a, a similar like version of the horse that he was making, but like um like slightly different. And I'm pulling out like I can't remember like what the conversion was, but it would have been like fifty euro in in Irish money. Yeah. And uh, I'm like, oh, I'm definitely gonna have to like haggle this guy hard to get it down for to like make this fifty euro like worth it. And he just kind of turns around, like looks at it for like all of like two seconds, and he's like, oh yeah, that'll be like what would be like five euro in Irish money. Yeah. And I'm, like, completely taken aback. And I'm, like, what the hell do you mean, like, five minutes? This this thing, it looks like this thing uh, took, like, an hour or so to make. Yeah. And I'm, like, five euro, that's, like, nuts, you know? Like, there just seemed to be, like, he was putting, like, no value on, like, himself. Yeah. Um, Which is, like, strange to be, like, a master of your craft and have, like, no concept of, like, personal value. Yeah. You know? Or at least, like, value in, like, the work that he's doing. Like, yeah, In terms exactly. of, like, monetary value, anyway. Yeah, monetary value. I mean, yeah. obviously, clearly, like, the fact that he's putting all these hours in is, like, this isn't perfect, this isn't perfect. He has value in, like, the work he's doing, mm-hmm. but he probably thinks that maybe this work isn't valuable to other people yeah, in some way. Yeah. Like, it definitely, it seems like <laughs> there was, like, a disconnect between, like, how much value that, like, I was putting on it, and there was, like, that he thought that I would value it. Yeah. Um. So he was like, oh, yeah, like, five-year-old. Like, that's loads, you know? Mm-hmm. Um. So I, like, pick up, like, two other things as well. And he's like, oh, yeah, like, what would be 15 quid? And I'm like, fuck that, basically. I give him the, what would have been, like, 50 euro. And I'm like, you, like, take this, man. These are, like, pieces of work that, like, I'm going to have forever. And if we were in Ireland, they probably cost like hundreds and hundreds of euros. Like yeah, exactly. Was I was so I was like, oh yeah, that's like three hundred quid's worth of like glass, like in an Irish context. So like that's why the price was like so vastly different mm. to like what I was expecting. Why do you think that was? Like, why do you think that there was such a difference between like what you were putting the value on, and, like him? This is a place where like I don't think his own country puts like value on him. 
but I think that the the UN supporting him is like just rubber stamping like so that he doesn't go out of business. Yeah. But I don't think that there's like much value. Like settlers aren't going to buy Palestinian goods, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the neighboring Palestinians aren't going to be like queuing up to buy expensive glassware from like a master or artisan like yeah of course i mean it's just there like you like you just wouldn't be buying yeah you wouldn't be buying it yeah. but also like they've got enough to worry about like food and like palestine is like kind of an inherently poor place because of like the way the economy is structured like against israel all the time so it's like when israel doesn't want your goods your goods are essentially like worthless so yeah it was just it was hard because it's like it's not like Hebron gets a whole boatloads of, of tourists, you know, especially not like Western tourists who generally have like deeper pockets, you know. And they're the type of people that would buy this stuff anyway because they're tourists. Like, yeah, exactly. Tourists that buy all those stuff and all those other countries we talked about. So if you know tourists, no market. Like, yeah, which is like just a shame. Like, it seems like a criminal shame to have like be a master at your craft and like have no monetary value to show for it because of like circumstance of your country and then like another example of that is so we we leave this um this workshop and we're like amazed by the the quality of the work and then we go into like this other store that we were like recommended to go to and um i'm i've been looking for about for like basically this whole trip apparently like palestinian leather like especially in hebron is like like world class yeah and um i decide to like buy this belt for like like pennies on the dime like same as the glass you know like really beautiful craftsmanship but like it's just not worth anything in monetary value because of the way that like the economy is structured yeah and it turns out that we've like stumbled across both like a local celebrity and like in recent years like an international celebrity um this guy is the owner of what's called the hundred million dollar yeah the hundred million dollar house yeah yeah and um basically what that means is like israeli settlers keep offering him insane amounts of money like they started off with like six million seven million and they upped it to like 30 million 40 million and now they're like offering him like hundred a hundred million dollars or something for his like house and his shop which is like man like that's just nuts like you're talking about like a handful of rooms the shop is like a single room square footage is basically like laughable but it's like all about placement because it's right next to the Ibrahim Ibrahim E mosque. Yeah, Ibrahim Mosque, yeah. And um basically what they want is they want to take over this store and then by putting settlers in the house, like put in like soldiers nearby and like cordon off the road and like basically grain gain like like a foothold in like controlling the mosque. Yeah. So basically, like to make it inaccessible to the people that would actually want to go there, yeah. the people that who is it is significant to. Yeah, basically, they're like trying to cut out Muslims from like going to like one of their most sacred sites. Yeah, which is just inherently fucked up. Like, mm. um, it would be like if like another religion came in and like decided to like buy all the land like surrounding the Vatican City mm. and then like not let any Christians go to it. Um, so like you wouldn't be able to get to the Pope or anything like that. It's just not like yeah yeah it's just kind of fucked up basically did you meet the guy himself yeah we talked to him for a little bit he was kind of like an interesting dude he was like kind of like your classic like he was so unassuming you know we didn't like talk about like the conflict or anything like that we kind of made small talk about the weather we were talking about ireland a little bit for some reason uh like obviously we're irish and like 
work out as easy to spot as being Irish. Um, actually, one of the first interactions we had was he asked us if we were British, like kind of quizzically, and like when we kind of made the face that we were like, no, we're not fucking British. Like he was like, you're definitely Irish. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, of course, yeah. And um, he's got like all these like interesting pieces, like kind of knickknacks, like leather working stuff like that, and like out of the counter, he's like. He's got, like, this collection of flags, and he's, like, got an Irish flag, and I'm, like, that just, like, hit me in a spot that, like, just made me feel good, like. Yeah. Uh, obviously, he's got, like, loads of flags, but it's, like, the fact that he just had an Irish flag and, like, in a place like this kind of, like, made me feel, like, at home for, like, a millisecond, which was really strange in being in, like, such a foreign place. Yeah, of course. And um, it kind of made me think on, like, what would it take for me to sell, like, my slice of home? Because it's, like, this isn't just, like, a dwelling to him, you know? Um, this is like his family, his like his everything, like yeah. because like obviously his sons are uh, and daughters are gonna inherit this store, like and mm. it's he wouldn't want them to sell this place either, like it's everything to them because like obviously they think that they're um descendant from like Abraham, as kind of like most Abrahamic religions do, like so in a way it's like selling a shop so near to like the mosque would be like selling your father's land yeah selling your identity man yeah literally it would be like selling your identity so it's like as someone who's from ireland it would be like could i cut out like my identity and like offer it up to someone else for like a big pile of money sure but a pile of money like a pile of money of any size is still a pile of money yeah but like not only that but you're also cutting out the identity of your country in a sense like you know no one else is going to be able to go there anymore like selling your culture yeah you know, but not for yourself, for everybody. And there's, a, I think, a big pressure in that. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can understand why you wouldn't want to do that because it's like, I think that's something that you like you couldn't explain away. Yeah. You know, it's like um because like as someone who studies international development, like I I'm not a massive fan of like borders or like border control or anything like that. And I kind of think that like being attached to like the land that you kind of arbit- arbitrarily have is like in some way silly. Like, like I don't believe that like you should restrict a lot of people coming into your country because of, like, where they came from or anything like that. But, like, I do think of, like, holding on to, like, an identity. And I think that, like, the only way is, like, an Irish person to, like, capture that is to, like, think of all the, like, the positive things that being Irish is. And, like, obviously, there's negative things, too, and there's negative things in every nationality, but you kind of, like, step away from that. It's, it's a weird, like, like, idealistic worldview in, like, a strangely, like, practical place. Because it was, like, your countrymen, like, getting killed on, like, the streets near you. And, like, there's people getting, like, thrown bleached and stuff like that. It's... But I, I think that makes it even more important because it's kind of like a... It is kind of like a fuck you in some ways. Like, you, oh, can't, take this, yeah. you can't take this from us. Like, you mm-hmm. know, you can do all that other stuff to us, but, like, you're not taking this as far as, like, we can live. Well, I definitely think that it's, like, it's ironic that um, as, as like, a people that have, like their rights like pretty much categorically stripped from them that like palestinians can still hold on to like land in a way that is giant is basically like a giant middle finger to like israeli settlers and i think that's like a lot of sentiment that i got from like the individuals that i that i met there that like they're resilient to a point that's like that is beyond the horizon of like the people that are like trying to take their land from them Mm. because like when you're trying to take you're looking for like the easiest target but like, as a community who doesn't want to give something up, the community bonds are, like, great for, like, sticking together, you know? Yeah. I think that what I was going to talk about next was, like, doing the tour of, like, the road. Or, like, so it, it's, like, Martyrs Road or, like, King David Street, Um, if you were, like, Israeli. 
but um, it's kind of like bogged down in like history to the point of view that it's so bogged down in history now that it's like if I was an expert on Hebron or an expert on Palestine or an expert on like the Israeli-Palestine conflict, I'd be happy to talk about it, but I'm not. I'm just like a 22-year-old who like had an experience, so I'm gonna like leave like talking about like that road like up to the experts because there's a lot of history there. Yeah. Um. But what I am gonna talk about is how like right on after we got a tour of the road, we had like like local like cuisine. So like I had falafel for the first time, and like Palestine is definitely a place where I I had a lot of firsts, and like falafel for the first time is like amazing, especially in a place like that. Um. So much so that I haven't really enjoyed falafel anywhere in Ireland like half as much. And it's kind of because it was like almost forced on me in an Irish mammy way when you're like in a when you're in like a marketplace with like Palestinians. Yes, you might be saying no to like food or drink or whatever, but like they have a way of like kind of twisting your arm to the bang to the point of like, oh, yeah, of course you're going to eat with them. Like, yeah, so it was like quite a powerful experience to share like food with like locals and stuff because of like obviously like cultural exchange. And like that's kind of it for like what happened in Hebron that day. So like, I'm going to talk about, like, a similar experience we had, like, that night. So, um, we, like, get the minibus home, we say goodbye to, like, Majad and Tammy's friend, and, um, we, like, go back to the house, and, um, what they're doing that night, like, the, the adults in the house, um, they're, like, setting up, like, a, a shisha pipe, mm-hmm. and, like, I've never smoked tobacco before or anything like that before, and, like, kind of coming from, like, a semi-medical background, I was like, oh, man, tobacco's bad for your health, yeah. like... I mean, we grew up together, and you were very anti-smoking. I very smoke, yeah. Very, very anti-smoking at one point. Yeah. Actually, at many points, but, yeah. um... Oh, man. My mom's gonna be listening to this. She's gonna be <laughs> mad. Oh, well. Um, but, yeah, so... Like, I would come from, like, someone who's, like, pretty anti-smoking. And they're, like, pulling out a sheet, sheet of pipe, and I'm like, nah, no way am I gonna, like, engage in this. Um, but what one thing I did bring um, from like my travel was like a big bottle of Jameson. So like I crack out the bottle of whiskey and I'm like, oh yeah, we're like trade. It's like trade for trade almost. Um, so like we're kind of like telling stories around like the shisha pipe and they're like they're kind of questioning me like why am I not like engaging in the shisha and I'm like, oh yeah sure tobacco like bad for your health and whatnot. Like I don't like shorten my life expectancy mm. and like the look on their face is like preserved in my memory. They're literally, like, laughing at me because they're like, that's not what's going to kill you in Palestine. Like, the the notion that they would, like, die from, like, something tobacco-related is so alien to them because they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to, like, walk down the road one day and, like, a soldier's going to, like, just have a bad day and, like, put an end to me. Like, yeah. that, like that's the, that's, like, the mentality that they're living with. So, yeah, that's, like, I take, like, a couple of puffs. I, like, choke like an absolute noob. And then I um kind of get into it after a while. It was just it was it was interesting to share like like a very like adult experience in like in like a place that had kind of made me feel like such a child. Yeah. Um. Because like you're so helpless in a, like such like an armed place, you know. Uh. And you're being led like everywhere by like other people. There's no knowledge that is your own. You're you're learning from everyone else all the time. So it was like it was interesting to like be able to share something in like the whiskey because like obviously like i've worked in like bars like since then so like my understanding of alcohol is like it's something to be shared not like consumed like at mass on your own and like i think i definitely like eased my viewpoint on like a lot of things by like it gave me like perspective on like 
life almost. Yeah, I, I understand that. Like, I think that um, because we live in kind of like a sheltered society, like the dangers that we have to contend with kind of like give us like this viewpoint of like, these are the things that are dangerous, like smoking, mm-hmm. like drinking, you know, all this stuff. But then it's like when you go to a place where it's like, it's just about survival and it's you kind of like take solace in enjoying like these things in life that like over here might be like taboo, like mm-hmm. smoking or whatever, even though smoking is like quite a normal thing still. That I suppose it kind of softens your position on that because you're like, well, these people actually have like this shit to contend with on mm-hmm. a daily basis where like they could actually die. Whereas in like for me, it's like there's not as much risk to my life on a daily yeah. basis. So like I'm just going to kind of enjoy this right now. And also as well, I think maybe it's like a case of like as you were saying, like with the eating as well, like with them and stuff, it's like you're almost getting like they're starting to accept you in a yeah, way. Yeah. Like you starting to feel like really accepted and you don't almost like want to spit in the face of that because mm-hmm. you like appreciate it so much because I suppose for them it may be hard to accept like strangers because of like the stuff that's happened to them in their yeah. lives and be- like they're like trust you with that and that's like I think a very powerful thing. Yeah, definitely, yeah. It went from being like us cooking our own food. Say from from that evening, right, when we we went home, it was like that was like the first night that like we hadn't cooked our own food. We were like eating dinner with the family, you know. So it was like, it was definitely like a big change from like being in Hebron, like kind of brought us on like one side of the fence, you know. And there was like acceptance in that, which is kind of a dangerous thing because you're like, you start to like rally around like one side of every argument. But it doesn't matter because like, that's the side that like was accepting, you know. Yeah. But it's the side that you're experiencing too. It's yeah. like, it's, it's really hard to be objective in that situation yeah you know like you're surrounded by those people like every day and you're like seeing the lives they live and you're just like how could there be any other perspective on this this Mm -hmm. is like the only right answer to me yeah you know like definitely like what hebron taught me was that there's like there is no objectivity in a place like that yeah because everyone you meet it goes back to like every conversation being political every conversation isn't just political but it's biased political because like everyone has a point of view on this topic. It's like during like the um the Eighth Amendment talks on when the referendum was on here, everyone had a viewpoint and every conversation that even like remotely surrounded that like conversation was like tainted by if your vote was yes or no, you know. Yeah. Uh, or like even your leanings. Lots of people didn't have a vote decided and that was almost like worse for you because at least if you could like claim a position you were, like, deemed to be, like, oh, yeah, like, this person, like, is in control. Yeah. But if you don't claim a position, you're, like, someone to be swayed. Like, um, we spent a couple days at the end of this, uh, at the end of this trip in, like, Israel, like, specifically Tel Aviv. And, um, you have to kind of put on this mask of being, like, pro-Israel when you're in Israel. Because you don't get to be pro-Palestine because every conversation that someone has with you is, like, an argument. There's, like, a moment where we speak to, like, uh, an IDF soldier uh, in, like, a later episode. And it's, like, it's so political, but it's not political because of, like, our conversation. It's, like, personally political. We're talking about, say, like, an Irish context and, like, Irish issues and, like, how our day's been and how our, like, what our lives are. And he's talking about, like, our political standpoint simply because he can tell that we're not pro-Israeli. And to him that there, like, wasn't... uh, there wasn't, like, a divide between, like, being pro-Israeli and, like, pro-something else. It was, like, you're either pro-Israeli or you're not. Yeah. And, like, it's the opposite in, like, this, this like, very casual setting in, like, a Palestinian family. Because, like, they were so accepting. Like, they didn't care what our views were. They were, like, oh, whatever this person decides right now is, like, 
gonna be based on like pretty healthy material of like meeting people 